Marshall and I will work on this for the second service. Uh, so we're reading in the book of Philippians, uh, starting in chapter 4. Again, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there should be one in the chair in front of you. Grab that. Feel free to take notes because that's a gift for you. You can take that uh, home. Uh, and we're in Philippians, which is uh, in the New Testament, just after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're into the Ian's Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. So today is Mother's Day, a day when we honor mothers, women who have served tirelessly, selflessly, raising up children to fear the Lord. Uh, I'm sure many of us here today would say we wouldn't be where we are today without the support of our mothers. I'm, I'm also sure that there are those who have difficult relationships with their mothers or have lost their mothers, and today can be a very hard day. Regardless of where you find yourself today, we know that motherhood is a high calling, a God-ordained calling, and we celebrate you today. Now, we also know that mothers, all parents, have flaws. Parents here, have you ever caught yourself like me saying, uh-oh, <laughs> I sound just like my mother or my father? I remember my mom telling me once that she, when she was growing up, she, in fact, made a commitment to never be like her mother, right? Well, then she had me and a couple of other kids, and, and in no time, she found herself time and time again <laughs> saying, oh, no, I sound like my mother. In fact, she said she focused so hard on not being her mother guess who she became? <laughs> you guessed it, her mother. She discovered something that we know as Christians, right? We f what we focus on is often what we become like. That which we focus on, we become. Today, we're going to look at a very familiar passage, one that was written by Paul to the Philippian church as an encouragement and as a reminder of what to focus on as followers of Christ. So Philippians 4, we're going to start in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
God, we thank you that we can trust, we can rely on you, that we can stand firm in you. God, I pray that as we unpack this passage this morning, Lord, that your words would be heard. It's not about me, Lord, it's about you. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that your truth would be spoken and that we would have a greater understanding of who you are, our hope in you, and, Lord, a better focus on you. In your name I pray, amen. So the passage opens with, therefore. So as my theology professor would say, when you see a therefore, we ask, what is it there for? Some of you knew that. These links to, so this, this passage here actually links together with what Paul wrote in the previous verses where he encourages the Philippians to stand fast in the Lord, knowing that, back in verse 20, our citizenship is where? It's in heaven, right? And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So this verse ultimately is setting the stage for the passage we're looking at today. It says, in light of our future hope, this is what we are to focus on. This is how we are to live. Saved believers can look forward to a time when every pain, every problem with our earthly body will be exchanged for a new and improved body, one that will last forever with the Lord. I was working in the garden yesterday, and I look forward to that because my body is sore for moving heavy boulders. Think about this. When we get to heaven, every pain, every ache, Every illness will be gone by the power of Christ. Isn't that exciting? Paul's description here refers back to Philippians 2, verse 6. It says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the name above every name. Jesus is equal with God, and all things are subject to him. And Paul reminds his readers that this perfect God, with a perfect resurrected body, certainly has the power to return and provide a glorified body to those who believe in him. Believers can take comfort in their future. Knowing God has the power to transform our bodies and keep us secure with him in his coming kingdom. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, this hope can be yours today by the grace of God. See, Paul was speaking to a group of people who had put their faith in Jesus Christ, a man who claimed to be God. And then you know what? He went and he proved it by defeating death. He died on a cross, taking the punishment for our sins, the sins of the entire world, your sins, my sins. The wrath of God was poured out on him instead of us. We deserved that death, but he died in our place so that we could be welcome to spend eternity with God in heaven a new body, eternal security with the creator of the universe. There's hope in that, church. There's hope in our future. So Paul here is saying, because we know this, our eternity is secure, the Philippians had all the more reason to stand firm in the Lord. Therefore, he begins, since Jesus is our righteousness, and since our eternity is secure, we are to stand firm in the Lord. Remember, Paul is writing to the Philippians who are experiencing persecution. 
This, uh, this wasn't a good time for the Philippians, right? They were suffering for the sake of their Christian confession. When he was at Philippi, Paul and Silas themselves had been beaten. They'd been thrown in prison. And yet here he is saying, there is hope. Since Paul had left, this kind of treatment continued. In a pagan culture, this church was facing all sorts of threats. So here is Pastor Paul affectionately cheering them on from prison. Hold on. Stand firm. Hold the line. This is military language, right? That Paul's already used once in this letter. Back in Philippians 1.27, a theme verse of sorts for this letter, Paul urged the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that <clears throat> I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So in a military context, standing firm might look like defending a strategic position. So what does that look like for us, standing firm in the Lord? What does that look like for our church? Well, when Paul says in chapter 4, stand firm thus in the Lord, he's saying that it involves doing what he has just written about in chapter 3. Trust in Christ. Receive the righteousness that comes from God by faith. Pursue holiness. Follow godly examples. Watch for hypocritical examples that might lead you astray. Stand firm in the Lord. Any other place is not a secure place to stand. And I just love the language Paul uses here, right? My brothers, in whom I love and I long for. My joy and my crown, my beloved. This is a sweet letter of care and love from Paul to the very first church that he founded. And his love for this, his, for this group of people really saturates every word. Let's continue in verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So it's clear in this passage that these two women were the source of some sort of quarrel in the church. And we see Paul here, instead of taking sides or, or stepping in to try and solve the problem, he simply tells them to be of the same mind in the Lord. You see, they had forgotten that they have a greater common ground in Jesus Christ. They had forgotten that everything else was less important than that common ground. Then Paul encourages his true companion, someone in the Philippian church who he trusted, to assist with the dispute, describing these women as co-laborers with him in the gospel. Isn't that a sweet way of referring to them? What a sweet reminder for us as we consider how we treat one another as co-laborers of the gospel with the same honor and hope of having our names written in the book of life. This book is described in Revelation 20. It lists each one of us who will be spending eternity with the Lord in heaven. The book of life. That is a book of hope. You and I get to share that blessing. And Paul is saying here, let's behave this way. You and I share the blessing of Christ that's more important than any dispute we may have. Let's focus on our future. Let's continue in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. 
The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, if you've been in the church for a while, you probably recognize the first part of this verse, right? Rejoice in the Lord. Anyone? Three-part harmony? Yes, okay, I got one. (laughs) What does it say? When should we rejoice? Always. And again, I say rejoice. There's emphasis on this, right? Think about this. Paul, again, is writing this letter to the Philippians from a prison cell. He's been arrested for spreading this message, this message of hope in Christ, and yet he's saying rejoice. (laughs) That's got to be a sweet reminder for us, right? When we start to think, man, life's rough. This guy was sitting in a prison cell saying rejoice in the Lord. Earlier in this letter, Paul is contemplating the likelihood of his death. It's very likely at the end of this prison sentence was going to end with his death. And what is his message to this church experiencing quarrels among their people? Such a small thing, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I came upon this really sweet quote from Charles Spurgeon. He's a pastor and a theologian in the 1800s. And I think we'll get it up on the screen here so we can, we can read it together. You don't need to do it out loud, just in your minds. I am glad that we do not know what the quarrel was about. So those two women at the beginning of this passage. I'm usually thankful for ignorance on such subjects, but as a cure for disagreements, the apostle says, rejoice in the Lord always. You see, people who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense or to take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles which naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. You see, joy in the Lord is the cure for all discord. Amen. Amen. What a sweet word. When our focus is off, when we are disconnected from the sweetness of our relationship with the Lord, we are so apt to get bogged down in disagreements because our eyes aren't on the Lord anymore. Our focus is horizontal instead of vertical. We don't recognize that, as Paul says, our hope is in the Lord. Because we have security in him, we don't need to be anxious about anything. Do you feel that today? Are you recognizing the security that we have in the Lord? Paul says, let your reasonableness be known. This is also translated as gentleness or or patience. We are to be known by our modest, forbearing spirit, showing the same gentleness that Christ did. He knew how to show a gentleness for sinners. Our reasonableness, that's a big word, should demonstrate the heart of a person who will let the Lord fight our battles for us. We know that vengeance is whose? The Lord's. So our reasonableness comes from a reliance on the one who has the last word. We are to be people who are really free to let go of our anxieties and all the things that cause stress because we know that the Lord will take up our cause. And listen, we are to let our reasonableness be known to all people, not just people we like, not just people we get along with and share all the same opinions. 
all people. Yes, that includes the person who didn't seem to notice when the speed limit went from 50 to 80 kilometers per hour. Yes, that person. That close talker at work. Yes, that person. The person who just caught in front of you in line at the grocery store. You know, the person with the, the cart full of fruits and vegetables. You know, all the items that you don't have barcodes for. You have to have manually, you know, those people. Yes, that person. <laughs> Are you known for your reasonableness? Are you known for handling situations with grace, with self-control, the ability to gently correct and demonstrate sound judgment? By God's grace, we can all grow in this. As we focus on Christ, the natural response is actually for us to extend the grace that he has extended to us. Paul says the Lord is at hand. He demonstrates this awareness that Jesus will soon return. This awareness makes it so much easier to rejoice in the Lord and to show gentleness to everyone because we know he is coming. We know that Jesus will settle every wrong at his return and we can trust him to make things right in our falling apart world. Then Paul goes on to encourage us to pray, not just sometimes about some things, but in everything. And what should the subjects of our prayers be? Paul says everything. <laughs> there are not some areas of our lives that are of no concern to God. Do you hear that? God cares about everything. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Why would that matter? I don't know, but it matters to God. And it's getting less and less over the years. But he still knows. <laughs> And he wants our requests to be made known to him through prayer. He already knows our requests before we can even pray them, yet he will often wait for us to make our requests before he answers them. It's a reliance on him that he's looking for. And we are to do so with thanksgiving, which guards us against complaining before the Lord. When we approach the Lord purely with a list of requests, we forget the prayers that have been answered in the past. Our life group went through a season where each week we would come and we had just a list of requests. God, do this. God, answer this prayer. God, and there's nothing wrong with that. God tells us to do that. But we decided one week to say, hey, why don't we look back to last week and say, what prayers have God answered? And let's thank him for that first. And I'll tell you something, that completely changes the perspective of that laundry list of prayer requests you came with. Because you look back and go, oh man, God's answered all of these prayers in the last week. It just gives you a different perspective of what you should be praying for moving forward, right? Paul says the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. That peace, is, that peace isn't just lack of war. It's a calm that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that is beyond our ability to understand and explain, but must be experienced a peace that will guard our hearts and our minds, a safety and security provided by God to us as we trust him. Do you hear that? As we trust him. If you think about it, when someone seems to lose their heart or mind, it is often connected to an absence of the peace of God in their life. God promises to guard these things in the peace that he provides for us. Let's jump back to our verse in verse 8. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul in this passage is clearly stating what we as followers of Christ are to focus our minds on. Every aspect he states is a focus on who? On Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of truth. Jesus is the fullness of nobility, of justice, of purity, of love. If we are to be followers of Jesus Christ, we must, he must be the consumption and the focus of our lives. So my mom, after sharing with me about her commitment to never become her mother, she shared this story. See, she worked as a midwife, and in her career, she trained many midwives. Now, midwives have a pretty unique role, caring for mothers as they go through pregnancy, as they go through labor. The first few weeks of caring for their newborn, they get to journey along with women who are in that process. And she said, when learning to be a midwife, you spend all of your energy learning what a healthy pregnancy and birth look like. All of your effort goes into what a healthy birth looks like. Why? So that you can immediately spot a deviation. Get the point here? They don't spend their time focusing on problems, right? They don't focus on all the things that can go wrong. They spend all of their energy looking to see what does a healthy birth look like. So right away, they can spot the problem. So when you think about being a follower of, our, of Christ, our focus must be on that which is true so you can spot the deviation. Our minds are to be guarded and bound by truth, not just correct facts, the truth itself. How will I know if something is true? Well, I must become so intimate with truth, with Jesus, that anything that doesn't look smell, feel, or sound like him, I immediately know it is a lie. I remember Becky Cook some time ago, great podcaster, great YouTube videos. He was talking about watching an hour of Netflix. He said, you know, at the end of that, you've just been lied to for an hour. So what are you going to do to fill your mind with the truth? Isn't that interesting? Maybe a little convicting? It's convicting me right now. <laughs> Well, Paul says this, we are to think upon whatever is noble and true and right. Now, in this case, the word noble is often translated as honorable, as respectable, as reverent and dignified. This particular word is only found four times throughout the New Testament, and its emphasis is always on someone's character. Your character characterizes you, obviously. People know you by your character. Sure, they may recognize you because of your physical features, but once they spend a little time with you, they know more about you than you may realize, for your character is constantly being made apparent to them through your actions, through the way you live. If you think about your family and friends, who would you trust to loan your car to? Or if you're younger here, maybe your bike. Who would you loan your bike to? Who would you trust with that? Who would you share a secret with? Who would you let cut your hair 
Now, I may have been a terrible choice for my kids during COVID. Um, I know they will never let me do that again. (laughs) Who would you share a struggle with? Who would you ask advice from? See, as you're processing this, right, when we consider this question, you're basing your answer on the character of that person. When my son comes to me and says, yes, dad, I've cleaned my room, I cross-reference what he says with what he's done in the past. Has what he has said before lined up with what he has done before? Do I take him at his word? Or do I need to go take a look for myself just to confirm that he has done what he has said? I might need to change this illustration in the second service because that's the one he's coming to. (laughs) That decision will be directly related to what I have seen of his character, right? You can't escape your true character. You may hide it for a season, but inevitably it will be seen in full color. Paul says we are to think and dwell upon that which is honorable. The key to having a life of honor, of nobility and character is not to get knighted in some medieval ceremony. The key is to have a mind that is focused on Christ. For whatever is in our heart and mind will show itself in our actions. So there's a standard. There's a standard for us. An objective standard. And what is that standard? Well, rather, who is that standard? You see, our standard comes from someone beyond ourselves. We don't choose the standard ourselves. Christ is our standard for honor, for character. He displayed a life of nobility. And now that same Jesus, through his spirit, lives in each of us when we come to know him. It is imperative that our minds stay focused on him. Paul calls us to meditate on these things. You see, much of the Christian life comes down to our mind. The boundary for our minds is not just what is true, but what is honorable, pure, lovely, and commendable. So how has your mind been recently? Are the thoughts you dwell upon filled with honor? Are they pure? Are they commendable? A thought life that is worthy of respect? It's important for us to consider these questions. And let's be honest, there will often be conviction as we do. And the sweet thing is that we can find encouragement in the fact that the Lord provides what we need. The life of honor we are called to to live is nothing short of impossible without the Spirit of God sourcing and producing it within our lives. Acts 1.8 says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, we have been given the power required to keep our focus on Jesus. Not of ourselves, not in our own strength, not something we think into being. It's the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Isn't that a sweet gift? It'd be easy to leave a sermon like this and start beating ourselves up I'm not going to be able to focus on Jesus all the time. Sometimes I have to worry about my car payments and my mortgage and my girlfriend. The reality is the Holy Spirit is with you and helps you accomplish this, to keep your focus on Jesus. He sends us out as witnesses and gives us the power to do it effectively. Isn't that encouraging? 
The goal of the Holy Spirit's work is to keep our focus on Jesus and make us more like him. But how does he do it? How does he do this work in us? Well, it's what we call sanctification. See, sanctification is the process of the Holy Spirit stripping away our sinful habits and bringing us into holiness. Think of it like peeling back an onion. There are layers. Colossians 2.11 explains this. When you come to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. The Holy Spirit works in us by peeling away our sinful characteristics and replacing them with godly characteristics. His work in us makes us more and more like Jesus. As we close this passage here, I'd love to welcome the worship team back up as we read the last bit of Philippians 4 here. It says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, as the Spirit empowers us, as it shapes us, we are to put into practice what we have learned. In light of our future hope, eternity with the Lord in heaven, stand firm in your faith, church. Rejoice in the Lord. Stay focused on Jesus, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We're thankful, Lord, that when we come into relationship with you, we can stand firm. We can face the trials of this world, Lord. We can rejoice in you regardless of our circumstance. Father, we thank you that if we focus our minds on you, you will shape us into what you desire us to be. In your name I pray, amen.